I'm the only one left, so I guess that's a clue. Let me say that you are worthy and deserving of commendation for your hospitality towards us. There is a scripture in the Bible, in the book of Hebrews chapter 13. It says to entertain strangers for unaware you entertain angels. Now you have done that. Uh, we, we were strangers. Uh, one Sunday we just dropped in. You had never met us. You fed us. Oh, what a meal it was. I didn't overdo it. I just stopped and did it over. And then today you allow us to come and given us an opportunity to speak. And truly, you have entertained strangers, but you have entertained angels. See, the word angel in the Greek is a cousin to the word for preaching the gospel. And since I'm a message bearer, I'm like an angel, and you certainly have done that. I say that in fun, yet serious. We certainly are grateful to you and will always be grateful to you. And I do not take this invitation and opportunity to speak to you lightly. It is of grave importance. It is serious business. Uh, yet still, we have joy in thankfulness for who we are, what we're about, and where we're going. And I salute you. And I pray that God will have a special blessing upon you uh, because you are his and not just only his, you are his special people. And I encourage you to continue to walk in that light. Now, I'm concerned a little bit here, and I solicit your prayers. Uh, normally, when I present a lesson, I exert energy and get involved in the lesson and all of that because I'm of the persuasion that if I'm selling, I need to first be convicted. And, but I'm concerned because I had surgery recently, and this is the first time that I'm preaching since that surgery. Uh, my wife has cautioned me not to get excited. But how do you not get excited for the gospel? Is there a way to not get excited? So pray for me in that endeavor, and I will do my best to not hurt myself. The theme, the purpose, the objective of our lesson today is to secure a greater appreciation for God's grace. You see, when we become citizens of the twice-born community, we easily arrive at the understanding that it matters not our vocation in life. We also realize that it matters little our ministry. Why is that? Because we understand as twice born citizens of the twice-born community, what matters most of all, what is paramount, is to have a life that is surrendered. A surrendered life in which God is glorified. And you see, we have to think that way about grace. 
Because the heart of man's problem is the heart. And we're speaking here heart, M-I-N-D, heart. The mind. The heart of man's problem is the heart. You see, man, the heart of man can become so easily contaminated with sin. That when it does, mankind is in desperate need for God's grace. And that is true considering the world in which we live. You see, we live in a world that is economically desperate, politically different, and sometimes racially divided. And it's easy for us to get distracted. But I'm thankful that when we do, God's amazing grace comes to the rescue. And so tonight we hope to develop that theme, that is, to have a greater appreciation for God's grace through the subject entitled, Amazing Grace, the Remedy for the Human Race. You see, God's grace is amazing. So amazing it teaches. So amazing that it warns. So amazing it is the remedy for the human race. The text read to us tonight is Titus chapter 2 and verse 11. And let me look into that a little bit to set the lesson up where we can appreciate uh, the, the message that is intended in that lesson somewhat. Let's look at the text. Titus chapter 2 and verse 11. In that text, the Bible says, the grace of God for the grace of God that brings salvation. Uh, well, notice the very first word there. For, that is a preposition. The task or purpose of prepositions generally or normally are to introduce or to locate the object of the sentence. So the task of the word for here is to locate or introduce the word grace. Now normally, when we have an introduction is because importance necessitates an introduction. When we have somebody of dignitary status comes to our function, comes to our event, it necessitates an introduction. And so it implies here that grace is of such importance that it necessitates. Uh, inspiration saw the importance of introducing it. The next word, the. It's an adjective. A demonstrative or distinguishing adjective. The task of such adjectives is to point out. So the word the points out, tells us, not just your grace or my grace or any grace, but the grace. That particular grace. Well, what about it? The grace of God. Who's God's grace? Not mine, not yours. Certainly we are recipients of that, and I'm thankful and you are too that we are recipients of that grace but it's God's grace and it says that grace that grace brings salvation it has appeared unto all men now it's not to assume that all men have obeyed that grace that message of grace but it has been made accessible to all men it has been made available it is yours for the asking so the introduced grace, the identified grace, the productive grace has appeared unto all men. Teaching us. Now that's where we want to bug down a little bit for the night in verse 12. Teaching us 
teaching us. We want to develop the lesson from here into the 12th verse. The grace of God that appears brings salvation. It teaches. Well, in the original language, the Greek of the New Testament, there is a common word for the word teach. It's the word didaskalos. But that is not the word that is employed here. The word that is employed here is a derivative of the word that is found in Galatians chapter 3, verse 26. Turn there with me, if you will. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 26. Well, it should be in verse 24, I'm sorry. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 24. There, the writer, Paul, we believe, is making an argument for the fact that God's people are no longer under the law of Moses, but they are now under grace, under the New Testament. And he informs those uh, Christians who were bewitched, who were tricked by Judaizers, who were caused to believe something that was not true. He says to them that there was a time when humanity was under the law, and the law was a schoolmaster. The Greek word there, pedagogos. Uh, that's the word that is used over here in Titus chapter 2. Pedagogosa. Well, it, 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 it's translated to teach, but that word actually means to train. Or better still, to tutor. To train. God, God wants, God allows grace to tutor us, to train us. The implication here is this, Christianity is not something we try out. And when we find it difficult or when we find it something that we do not like, we just cast it aside. No, Christianity is something we practice because we are being trained, we are being tutored to do that. But, but here, is, here, is what, here is the question that that provokes. The grace of God that brings salvation have appeared unto all men, teaching us. Here is the question. Why in the world does God want to teach us? Why in the world would God send his grace or message of his grace to teach us? Why is that? Well, I think we can find the answer in the fourth chapter of the book of Galatians. In Galatians chapter 4, if you would turn there with me. And we will notice some things. Galatians, the fourth chapter, and beginning at verse 1. In times of antiquity, there were customs among royalty. Uh, kings, as it were, would secure the best teachers, best trainers in the world for their sons. Because their sons were next in line to occupy the throne. And therefore, it was imperative, it was important to them that their sons were best trained for that position. Are you getting a clue? Are you getting a hint as to why God wants to train us? Let's look at the, the, the text. Galatians chapter 4 and verse 1, it says, Now I say that the heir, speaking of that son, as long as he is a child does not differ at all from a slave. 
though he is master of all. That is to say, he's potential king. He's not yet king, but he's potentially the king to come. Although he's master of all, while he's a child, he's still a servant. He's still a slave. But he's under guardians and stewards. See that word guardian? A trainer, a tutorer. But he's under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by his father. Customarily, kings would set a time when their sons would be declared men. Well, God wants us to declare, God wants to declare us grown up. God wants to declare us mature. And ladies, the term son here does not exclude you. It's the generic use of the masculine gender. Because that culture, that custom used son or placed emphasis on sons next to the throne, inspiration employed the terminology because that audience understood that. But it includes all those who are God's children, even his beautiful and wonderful daughters. Well, notice further, Galatians 4, uh, until the appointed time of the father, even so, verse 3, even so when the, when the, even, I'm sorry, even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world, talking about the first economy. Look at verse 4. But when the fullness of time, in other words, God's idea parallels that culture. It mimics that culture. The, the, the terminology that inspiration employs speaks to an audience that were familiar with that culture. He says, just like the king, would secure a time when his son would be declared son, so I mean man, so he could occupy the throne. So it is when the fullness of time, in other words, God set a time for us. When the fullness of time, God set a time with our interests at heart. When the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman under the law to redeem them that were under the law. Now we started, we introduced this cultural idea here to explain and make application to scripture relative to the fact that those kings would secure the best teacher. We already gotten a hint, we already gotten a clue as to why God wants grace to teach us. But here is another million dollar question. Where in the world is God going to find the best teachers there are, or there can be, to train and teach us so we can become heir to the throne. Where in the world is he going to find that? Well, it's not very far. It's right there in Galatians 4. Look at verse 6. And has placed in our hearts the spirit of who? Not God's spirit, not the Holy Spirit, but the spirit of his son. Now, normally, now I've not trying to confuse here God's spirit the Holy Spirit spirit of Jesus same thing but notice the verbiage that is used here it's used for a particular reason often it's God's spirit it's the Holy Spirit but here it's the spirit of Jesus Christ why why because Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 8 says though he was a son yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered 
The, the, the best trainer, the best teachers we can find are those who have experienced those things who can now teach and train us, Jesus has. And because Jesus suffered those things, now Jesus can train, Jesus can tutor us, and God has placed his spirit in our hearts to tutor and train us to become sons so that we can reign. When, when, when you think of yourself, whether individually or collectively, as God's people, don't ever think of that lightly. You are somebody. Hello? You, you, you are somebody. You, God has prepared you to reign with him. You are God's choice. You are God's special people. You are somebody. And so God has sent his grace to train and to tutor us so that God, in another lesson we'll talk about that, not tonight, so that God can put you on display. Oh yeah, God wants to show you off. And we don't, we don't put raggedy stuff on display, do we? We, we? we put our best trophies, we dust them off, we shine. God wants to put us on display. Why? Because we are special and that is why he has utilized his grace to come to train us. But next question, how does God's grace train? It says the grace of God that brings salvation have appeared unto all men. What? Teaching us that denying ungodliness. Oops. We're going to have to be restrained. We're going to have to be disciplined. We're going to have to be careful. Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts that we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this world. That we should deny ungodliness. What's that? Anything that's not godly. And worldly lusts. The cares and desires of this world that are against God's will. There are some things that are in this world. We consider those things necessary sustenance. Even though they are non-spiritual. Yet God wants us to and expect us to have those things. So that's not what he's talking about. But he's talking about things that are against his will. He wants us to deny those things. But notice how grace teaches. Grace does not only teach us to not sin. It is not enough to not sin. If a person would decide, you know what? From here on, I'm not going to ever sin again. That would be great and fine, but that would not be enough. Because here it says that we must deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. That is to say, not sin. But then it says what? We must live godly in this present world. We must live soberly, righteously, and godly. What does it mean to live soberly? Well, 1 Peter 5 and verse 8 comes to our rescue. In that scripture, Peter is writing to the dispersed. And he says that Satan... The adversary is walking around as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. But before he said that, he prefaced it by saying, uh, be watchful, walk circumspectly. Well, that is somewhat kind of paradoxical here, so to speak, uh, for lack of better choice of word. Well, walk circumspectly? How are you going to walk circumspectly? Well, the literal translation of that would be to walk looking around. 
Well, you can't walk looking around. If, when you walk and you're looking around, you'll get nowhere. But it's not intended to have a literal understanding. It ought to have a sensible understanding. That is, walk being aware of your surroundings. And so God wants us to be aware that Satan is out to get us. You see, Satan tried his hand at God. And he realized that our invincible commander-in-chief was no, he was no match for our master. And now he seeks to take to harm God's pride and joy, the apple of his eye, the church. But you know what? He knows that he cannot and will not win. But God wants us to be aware of him. Now when we read 1 Peter, that can be misleading though. Because it says a roaring lion walking around. Well, you, you might think, well, oh, all right. So lions walk around in the jungle all the time roaring. Not so. If lions would walk around in the jungle every day all the time roaring, they would starve to death. But what he wants us to understand, because we know lions are, they, they are known for, they are notorious for their roar. He uses that term to identify or to describe. Because you see, when a lion walks around in the jungle, it walks quietly. That no one knows that it's there. And as soon as it gets into the right distance from its prey, it leaps and roars and sends a roar that sends its victim into a stupor to the extent that it cannot defend itself. Well, Satan would like to make fools of us too in that way. But God says that we need to be sober. What does it mean to be sober? To be able to think on your feet. To be able to, to think wisely, to make wise decisions. Not short-term decisions with long-term effects. But to think it through. And if it's right and if it's wise and if it will bring glory to God, then let her rip. But if not, back up. Walk away, sometimes even run. So we must live godly, live righteously, live soberly. Live godly to do what God would have us to do. But you know what? Even after we have done that, even after grace has taught us, we realize that it's not enough to just be taught. Let's make an application here. It's not enough to be taught. There is a purpose for teaching. There's a purpose for training. There's a purpose for being taught. Well, let's put it where the calves can reach it. At home, on the dinner table, here is Junior. He's probably six months to nine months old. And at the dinner table, he sticks his hand in the butter. And to everyone, that's funny. But let him try that when he's about four or six or eight or 15. Well, somewhere between nine months and four years old, he was trained not to do that. And from that training, his parents expected results. Same thing is true. Why do we send our kids to school? To get good grades? Well, I hope they make good grades, but that's not the purpose. The purpose is to transform learning into employment, gainful employment, that it may be able to take care 
for themselves of themselves and provide for their own. You see where I'm going with this? Spiritually. Why are we being taught? So we can be transformed. Grace of God trains, disciplines, tutors, so that we can no longer be ourselves, be our own, but we can become gods. Better said, possessive gods belonging to God. Are you not thankful that someone, don't know who, it's probably been a while, someone in your congregation decided to allow grace to transform them? Had that not happened, we would not have a congregation here today. We would not have been able to influence the community and attract people to Christ. So thank God for his grace. The remedy for the human race. And we can find, we can see that exhibited right here. Because someone allowed grace to teach them. And as a result of God's grace teaching them, they have been transformed. Others have been transformed. You have been transformed. Here you are and you're hoping to transform others. The grace of God that brings salvation have appeared unto all men. But God's grace is amazing that it teaches. God's grace is amazing. It warns also. God's grace is amazing that he teaches us our indebtedness to the world. That is, you and I as Christians who have been transformed, we are now to attract the world to that source that has transformed us. In the book of Romans chapter 1, verses 14 and following, Romans the first chapter, Paul is writing to the saints at Rome, we believe people he had not yet met. And he says to them, I am debtor both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and to the unwise. For as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. That is, the just shall live by faith. Verse 18, he says, but the wrath of God is revealed from heaven towards all the ungodliness of man who holds truth in unrighteousness. Let's go back to those very early verses. Paul said, I'm dead both to the Greeks and to the barbarians. Who are those people? Well, to the wise, to the unwise, the barbarians, those are parallels. Barbarians are the unwise. Those are the kind of people who shoot first and ask questions later. They're the bush kind of folks. But then the wise are parallel to the Greeks. The Greeks were notorious for having good orators and liking to hear and, and wanting to hear uh, presentations and so forth. They were the people of the knowledge, at, at least they thought so. And Paul says, I am dead both to the Greeks and both to the Barbarians. The implication here is this. A person does not have to uh, be a rocket scientist to be taught the gospel. And it is not true that because someone is so educated and has a high status in our community that he's not interested in the gospel. It's not true. 
Paul said, I am debtor to these folks. In other words, I am obligated. It's my responsibility to take the gospel to those folks. In fact, Paul himself expressed that in another uh, scripture. In 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 16, he said, For though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory of for necessity. Notice that, for necessity is laid upon me, and woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. I share that sentiment. I share that sentiment. I, 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 I pray and trust that God will allow me, as long as I live, as long as I have breath in my body, to share the gospel with those who are lost. And encourage those who are saved. And I'm thankful to have people like you who will encourage me, give me the opportunity to speak and to share with you our plans about going to St. Croix and, and trying to share the gospel and then hopefully you can be partners with us based on the decision of the leadership here. But that's what grace does. Grace grace. It's so awesome, it's so amazing that it teaches us how to live and it teaches us our obligation, our responsibility to the world. And finally, God's grace is so amazing that it warns us. I'm not going to read the text because this is a text with which we are most familiar. Rich man and Lazarus. We know the story, Luke 16. No one has ever been to hell. Hell is so designed that no one can go to hell and come back to earth to tell us about it. Guess what? Grace knew that. Grace knew that situation. Grace knew there was no way we could know. Because the only way we could know is to get there and it's too late to make changes. So grace went ahead. Went to hell. Had an interview with somebody in hell. And send us back a text message. Young people appreciate that. Now that's not literally true. But I'm trying to get your attention. And so the Bible tells us. There were two men. Luke 16. There was a beggar. His name was Lazarus. He died. And the Bible says he was received up in Abraham's bosom. And Abraham's bosom is synonymous to being comforted of being in heaven. The Bible also says the other man in the story, the rich man, also died. And here is all that is said of him in reference to his death. The rich man also died and was buried. I say to you tonight, when I'm dead, if I'm not the last person, I want more to be said of me. Than just the fact that I have, I've, I've died and they buried me. I want to have touched lives. Not because I'm somebody. Not because in that sense of, of ego and all that. But because I have an opportunity to live as God, a child, as a Christian. And hopefully in the process of living have touched some life. And have influenced somebody for good. And have pointed someone to the cross. And so... The Bible says that man was buried, that man died and was buried, and in hell he lifted up his eye because he was in torment. And he began a conversation negotiating here with Father Abraham, who is representative of heaven. 
And to make a long story short, he realized that he was at a lost case for himself. He began now to be considerate of his brothers. And he said, Father Abraham, well, yeah, I understand there's a golf fix. Uh, you cannot come to me and I cannot come to you, as Abraham said. But Father Abraham, I have five brothers. Please send Lazarus. Well, first he did say concerning himself, we want to not overlook that, to dip his finger and come and cool my tongue. Notice he didn't request a 45-gallon drum, drum of water. He didn't request a 5-gallon uh, pail of water, bucket of water. He didn't request a gallon bottle of water. He didn't request an 8-ounce glass of water. Water was precious commodity in hell. All he wanted was a moistened finger to cool his tongue. And when he realized his case was lost, he said, Father Abraham, send Lazarus to my five brothers that he may not come here. And Father Abraham said, son, they have Moses and the prophets. If they will not hear them, neither will they hear or listen to someone who comes from the dead. God does not do things just for our convenience. God is serious about what he does. Listen, God is passionate about us. God has, not literally, but bent over backwards. See, I say that carefully because God doesn't have to bend over backwards to do anything. But in human terminology, God has bent over backwards to, to, to look out for us. So God cares about us. But God doesn't do things just to fit our fancy. If one will not adhere to what God has already legislated, then there is nothing else. In fact, in Hebrews, the 10th chapter, and I think it's the 26th verse. I didn't plan to use it, so read the whole book or the whole chapter. You'll run into it. But it says, if we sin willfully, there remaineth no sacrifice for sin. And verse 31 of that same chapter says, it's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. Now that's not to scare us. That's to help us to have respect for what God wants of us. And all God wants is all. All God wants is all. You see, grace is so amazing that it teaches us how to live. It teaches us our indebtedness to the world. And it warns us, it saves us, literally snatches us from hell. Because in this world, in this life, if we are not in Christ, our feet, we may say, are already dangling in hell. We are on our way. But thank God that God loves us this much. That he sent grace to teach us, to, to tutor us, to train us. That we may listen, that we may obey, and that we may be rescued from a devil's hell. Amen. Thank God for that. Let's close the lesson. You know, as we travel, I don't know if you've traveled I-40 East, and you've seen all these cliffs and all these wires that they throw against the rocks to keep them from... And we see signs that says, fallen rocks. And we don't camp out at those spots, do we? We don't park our cars, they do it. No, we take heed. We travel further, we see signs that says, bridge is out. 
We don't continue, do we? No, we don't. We give heed to those warnings. And you know what? Those only impose physical harm. Yet we are concerned, yet we're serious about it. What about spiritual warnings? What about spiritual warnings that says, listen, if you are not in Christ, you are lost for all eternity and you're without God in this life and in the world to come will be of all men most miserable. That's a serious warning. And I'm thankful tonight that most of you, if not all, under the sound of my voice have already heeded that warning. You know why? Because at this moment, at this time, while you are under the sound of my voice, this is the time to embrace God's warning. Because at this moment, at this time, it is a matter of grace. When time ends and eternity begins, it will be a matter of judgment. And it will be too late. See, now God... Jesus Christ is pleading on our behalf. He is our savior. He cares for us. He will speak on our behalf to the father, so to speak. In this time. But when eternity begins, he will become a judge. And he will be a fair judge. The lesson is yours. Amazing grace. The remedy for the human race. I think it's traditional that we offer an invitation at the end of the lesson. And we want to encourage you to realize that this is the moment. This is the time. The Bible says in the book of Hebrews chapter 3 verses 7 and 8. For this is the day. Today is the day of salvation. Not yesterday. Not tomorrow. You see tomorrow is not promised. Yesterday is past. Today is all we have. That is why it's called the present. You and I must embrace that. Today is the day of salvation. Now is the accepted time. If we will not harden our heart. If we will heed to his voice. Oh he will save us. And boy he wants to save us. He wants to save us. The Bible says God is not slack concerning his promises that some men, as some men count slackness, but is long suffering towards all that no one would perish but have everlasting life. In the book of Acts chapter 17 and about verse 30, the Bible says in the time of this ignorant God winked at but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Because he have appointed a day in which he will judge the world by that man whom he hath ordained. Wherefore he have given assurance unto all men that he have raised him from the dead. Boy, God wants us to be saved. He gives us chances. He gives us opportunities to realize our faults. To realize our, 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 our sins. To realize our lost condition. And come to him because he and he alone can save us. And so if you stand tonight at a guilty distance from God, that is, you have never obeyed his gospel, you have never won his name, you can become a child of God tonight. You can begin to live tonight. Because when one is born again, that is the first day of his life when he really, truly lives. We invite you to do something that we realize is profitable, yet it's not easy. But let me say this to you, that the Christian life is the greatest life one can ever live, for he can never live long enough to regret living it. Oh, I said something there. Let me say that again. The Christian life is the greatest life one can ever live, for he can never live long enough to regret living it. 
Oh, embrace God's invitation, God's opportunity, if you've not yet saved. Well, preacher, what do I have to do? Well, the Bible says you must believe God's words, you must repent of sins, and you must obey the gospel. How do I obey? Repenting of sins, confessing faith in Christ, and being baptized for the remission of your sins. And God will add you to his church. Not some man's church. Sometimes you hear individuals say, well, you know, we were out on vacation, and we didn't find the Lord's church, so we attended the next best thing. What? The next best thing? Folks, listen to me. And if this is all you hear, please hear it. There is nothing in this world, no institution that holds a distant second place to the Lord's church. And, and we do not say that to offend. We say that to help you to understand that God, what God has is the best. And there is no second place. There's no second choice. God gives his best and God wants our best. But what if you are listening tonight and you have already done that. But you stand at a guilty distance because you have wandered away. Well, you're probably not alone. The kind of world in which we live does not give any care. That we're trying to live for Jesus and we'll throw things in our way to get us off track. But I'm thankful tonight that I serve a God who knows how to take up the broken pieces and put them back together again and give us second chances. I'm thankful tonight that I serve a God who sends out second invitation and invites us back home. If you are his child and you have wandered away, you're in the presence of friends tonight. Don't be ashamed. We're not going to embarrass you. All you've got to do is realize where you are. Ask God to forgive you. Ask the brethren to pray for you. And they will spend the rest of their life encouraging and motivating you to live for Jesus Christ. If that's what you want. We extend God's invitation to you. Not ours, but God's invitation to you right now as together we stand and as we sing.